Will you pray with me? Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts together be acceptable in your sight. Through Christ Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. King Uzziah is dead. All told, his life in public service lasted more than 50 years. He became co-regent of the kingdom of Judah when he was only 16 years old, and he served alongside his father for about a decade. Then there was a great span of middle years when he mostly did that which was pleasing to the Lord, and uh, God blessed the people, and everything got really prosperous for a while. Ultimately, Uzziah did some things that were not pleasing to the Lord, set up some uh, kind of false idol type things, and repented back from that, but was stricken with a, a form of leprosy, and that's a word that could cover any number of afflictions in the time of King Uzziah. So with one of his sons, he was also a co-regent for the last 10 or 15 years of his reign. 50, 51, 52 years in the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom of Israel had divided from the southern kingdom. Solomon had, or David had brought it all together. Solomon ruled over the United Kingdom. Solomon's children split it back into two parts. Because, you know, you can call a nation united, but there's always Yankees and there's always Rebs. There's always a north and there's always a south, isn't there? There's always a region. Up in the north, they punish all the wickedness and they bless all the, right, all the righteous. Down in the south, they say, David is the king. David received a blessing. David and his descendants will sit on the throne forever and ever. Up in the north, they emphasize Moses. Down in the south, they emphasize David. Up in the north, it's very moral, very structured. Down in the south, they live in this kind of grace where they know that God's never going to let them down. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah had already been serving as a temple priest for many, many years. He, you can imagine, walked to the temple in those years after Uzziah died, or in those days, months, weeks, years, thinking this place isn't like it used to be. The, the young people today, they don't, they don't pray with the same intensity as we used to pray. They, they're much sloppier in how they come to the temple. They don't seem to have their heart in it. They don't seem to be doing it right. It's not like it was when Uzziah was still here. Our king is gone and, and change has come to the land and we don't, we don't know how to deal with this anymore. He stops and he gives a few shekels to the guy who sells him his bread every day and he breaks the bread and he munches it on his way up the path towards the temple and he walks in where they're selling and 
buying and doing all the kinds of things they do, need to do to keep the, the temple sacrifices going on a regular basis. The whole place smells of barbecued meat and incense. And he walks in to the court of the Israelites, past the court of the women, where the women can't go any further, and they are praying and fervently doing their best to honor God. And he goes into the court of the Israelites and into the court of the priests and up toward the sanctuary where sacrifices continue to be offered. In the king, year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah began to see that he had lived his life in such a way that a deep, deep spiritual complacency had fallen upon him and the whole land. Because in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah had a vision. He saw the Lord God high and lifted up, seated on a throne above all of creation with angelic creatures hovering over the throne and attending to him and crying out with a loud voice, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The smoke of the incense and the sacrifice filled the temple in such a way that it looked like the great train of God's raiment all around him on the throne. And Isaiah fell to the earth and he cried out, woe is me, I am lost, I am done for, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And then one of those creatures that hovered over the throne, attending to God, took, as it were, in Isaiah's vision, a a pair of tongs and reached to the altar of God and grabbed a coal and flew down to Isaiah and touched his lips with it. Hey, it's Memorial Day weekend. Let's have a sacramental moment here. Fire up the barbecue and I'll cleanse each one of your lips with a toll with a coal from the barbecue. Of course, there's a principal difference between the fires we light on earth and the fire of God in heaven, and this is it. The fire of God burns hotter when you get farther away from it. But as you draw near, it begins to bring the cooling presence of God's own self until at last it cures and heals and refreshes all that we need. Isaiah was touched. Something new was happening. He was in advancing years and something new was happening. Your lips are clean. But Isaiah had said, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. There were two things wrong. Two things that made him fall to his face. Two things out of sort. We all have the need to come before God in personal confession. We have felt that need before, and God can cleanse us, but there's still the matter of what's going to happen to the world around me. How do I speak to that? And Isaiah heard the voice of God crying out, Who will go for me? I have a mission. I have a purpose. I have something to be said. Who will go for me? And without even thinking, 
Isaiah, in the exuberance of a moment of being cleansed by God, raised his hands and said, get somebody else, Lord. No. (laughs) He said, here I am. Send me. Now, we didn't read what follows. And maybe if Isaiah had seen what was about to come, he would have had second thoughts about raising his hands. But the thing is, when you are in a stance of humility before God, you can't say no. No matter what the mission is, you have to say yes. They say in this world that pride goeth before a fall, well, humility cometh before a call. And if you want to know what God has in store for your life, then find yourself with Isaiah standing in front of God and say, whatever comes next, I'm your man. I'm your woman. Send me, Lord, for here I am. Be a church on fire with the fire of God. Not a fire to destroy the enemy, but a fire to cleanse and purify ourselves until we finally find the calming, cooling spirit of God settling the storms of our inner lives. Here I am, Lord, send me. What God said next, if you want to flip ahead, beginning in verse 9, is I want you to go and speak to the people, these people of unclean lips. I want you to go and I want you to tell them they're doing just fine, there's nothing wrong, and everything's going to be rosy. Okay, Because I'm bringing judgment, and I don't want them to repent. What? That's what it says. Make the ears of these people fat. Fill their eyes with good things so that they can see, but they don't understand, so that they hear, but they do not perceive. Or I'm about to judge them. And I don't want them to miss the sermon I'm bringing, Isaiah. So Isaiah now is having second thoughts, and he says, "Um, Lord, how long do you want me to keep this up? How long, O Lord? I want you to keep preaching this way until everything has been cut down, and there's nothing left but a stump, and then the stump itself has been burned. So there's nothing left, nothing, that anyone within earshot can claim they have done on their own. I want you to bring it down to the point where there's no left, nothing left, that anyone can claim as their work, their power, their initiative. And then what comes next you will recognize from our Christmas and Advent readings. For out of that burned, dead, lifeless stump of Israel, a shoot shall come forth, a branch from the root of Jesse. Isaiah, I am going to do something, and I don't want anybody stepping in front of me, says the Lord. I want them to know that when it happens, I want them to know that it was God who did it. And it will be as obvious as lightning flashing from the east to the west. No one, no one will mistake it. Will you do that for me, Isaiah? 
here I am. <laughs> Send me. You know, this should cause every church in our present age to scratch their head a little bit and wonder, what, what's going to happen on the day that the preacher stands up and, we, and he tells us, we're all doing great. We're all doing fine. You don't have to change a thing. Everything's going to be wonderful. And it turns out that in his study or in her study that day, the Lord said, I want you to do this because I'm about to bring judgment and I don't want them to repent. Yikes. I'll pat you on the head and say, you're doing great. You ever have that moment as a parent? You tell your kids, don't do that. Don't do that. But I can do it. But I, I'm telling you, don't do that. I can do it. Okay, knock yourself out. Have a blast. And then sure enough, splatter. And you got to pick them up and talk through. Sometimes people have to try things for themselves, I guess. We are standing in the presence of God on Trinity Sunday. The whole notion of the Trinity itself is something that has caused people to scratch their heads and wonder for years. Because we, we live in a, in a post-scientific age where we want to cut things down and understand how they work. How does the Trinity work? How can you have three persons in one God? How can there be only one God if we call God Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? How does all that work? I don't know how it works. It's mystery. But it's the only way the church has known to refer to a God who is at one and the same time creator and redeemer and sustainer and then so much more than all of that. Margaret Wheatley has written a, a wonderful book about 10, 12 years ago called Leadership and the New Science. It, it fascinating. I've underlined more pages in that book just because I have a, a brain that wants to understand things. And, and she talked about a time when, you know, I, uh, Albert Einstein was doing the E equals MC squared thing and laying all of the theory of relativity on us and the fact that gravity has such an effect that you can actually bend light and the, the faster that we accelerate toward the speed of light, the more time itself slows down and all of that stuff that I don't understand. But at the end of his life, the one thing that he hadn't resolved yet was, if, was what constitutes the basic building block of our universe. Is it particles of atoms, particulate matter, or is it waves, sine waves and light waves and sound waves? Waves are particles, waves are particles, waves are particles. The argument raged on, and so they set up a test to test whether it's waves or particles. And whenever the person conducting the test looked for waves, guess what they found? Waves. And whatever they tested for particles, guess what they found? Particles. You with me on this? Congratulations, you're now quantum physicists. To the point where somebody finally raised their finger and said, I wonder if the basic building block of the universe isn't actually the relationship between an observer and the thing being observed. Now, now we're getting somewhere. Maybe the God of scriptures wanted us to know that the most basic structural thing that holds us together is relationship. 
And then it makes the prayers of Jesus in the upper room make so much sense. I am in you, and you are in me, and I am in the Father, and all are one together. Father, Son, Holy Spirit is a way the church reminds ourselves that we can never, ever be a Christian and a Lone Ranger at the same time. People who try to do that end up worshiping a God who sounds just like their own voice. They end up worshiping the God of their bedroom mirror. They end up worshiping themselves. But we are people who are called by God into relationship. Here, Isaiah, I have cleansed your lips. You're no longer unclean. But now you live in a relationship with a bunch of others, and they need to hear too. We are confronted by the mystery of the Trinity precisely so that we understand that we must always live in relationship with each other. When we took Sarah into our family last week and baptized her, we committed her to a relationship with the whole church and not just to live a life on her own. And that's what's, that's what's happened to each of us in our own baptism. We are called to live in these powerful, wonderful relationships with successful people and with sinners, with truth-tellers and with liars, with people that we can trust and people who are total scoundrels, people who have lots of money and people who have two nickels, people who bathe every day and people who smell like they haven't bathed in a year. People of many continents and many colors, many kinds, we are in relationship with all of them. And in the name of God, no matter how many times you call me an animal, I'm still a human being. We are in relationship. We don't get to build any kind of barrier or wall around ourselves because this person doesn't please me or that person is distasteful to me. They are living their lives and I'm the one with the problem if they don't please me. Fix me first. Oh, the call to reach into the world is powerful and visceral and God is waiting to give you yours as he's waiting to give me mine. If only we can find the strength to to, to, to become humble before God, to fall on our knees and say, Lord, I can't make it out here alone. We need the blessing of God. We need relationship with the divine and we need each other to complete the puzzle. We need all of each other. The, the basic obligation that we have as Christians is to go out and find a way to, to relate, find a way to make it work, because the people we call our enemies are not going to take the first step. So we have to. We have to take the first step. We have to take the initiative. We have to turn the other cheek. We have to offer forgiveness. We have to offer grace. We have to take the love of God and share it with the world. It's our calling to take the first step. Somebody has to. It's on us. 
And on this Memorial Day weekend, I have been thinking that true faith is a lot like true patriotism. Both require us to do things in fidelity to our God and to our nation when nobody is watching us. It's the things we do when no one is watching that reveal the depth of our patriotism and the depth of our faith. I see Christians all the time, and, and I'm one of them sometimes. They wear a big cross around their neck, or they, they put a bumper sticker on their car, and they, they, they wear the label proudly, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, but, but, but they're not doing the things that God wants us to do. And I, and I see citizens in this land who do the same thing. They put a flag out on their house and they stand up and they put their hand over their heart when they play the national anthem. But are we fulfilling the promise of this country? Are we fulfilling what our founders set out to fulfill? A place of absolute freedom for all citizens where we can come together and share a common wealth that no one should go without, that the right to life is established as the premier right in our Bill of Rights, the right to life and to liberty and to the pursuit of happiness. That's the fundamental right. When we get that one right for all citizens of the land, then we can talk about the Second, Third, Fourth, and Fifth Amendment, and so on. But we cannot deprive anyone in this country of the fullness of their rights. The people buried in national cemeteries all over this land who believed that and gave their lives to that idea. Let us never find ourselves speaking of human beings who have made it to this shore as anything other than treasured creatures of God, even if they need a bath or they haven't eaten for a day or two. This is not only the fulfillment of our charter as a nation, it is the deepest fulfillment of our calling as Christians who believe in God to the extent that we know that we are still in relationship with God. God is not far off. God is not on the other side of the universe. God is here by the power of his spirit. It's in the name of Jesus, to the glory of the Father, forever and ever. Amen.